The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. In the era of President Donald Trump, the GOP's clarion call for moral leadership from the nation's highest office has been significantly subdued. (laughs) Significantly subdued. (laughs) It's called uh, your hypocrite. It's called, hey, we just want to win. We don't have any values or principles. We just want someone with a big capital R next to their name. We just want to win. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in if you've listened before. If you're new, I hope you're here looking for a voice of reason, a voice of freedom, a voice of liberty. Some people talk about moderate Muslims. I reject that term. I think you're either American, a liberal, liberal Democrat, if you will, believing in a republic and our constitution, or you're an Islamist. And uh, some Muslims might be in between, confused, but at the end of the day, there's no moderation when it comes to Islamism. You either buy into it, and you're working against the American system, or you buy into freedom, Americanism, and you're working against theocracy. And here on Reform This Week to Week, I hope to bring you those battlefronts, those lines that uh, I hope you learn about, that you realize that we're fighting on a day-to-day basis, and maybe you'll become a little better armed in dealing with the issues of the day, in rejecting political correctness, and in understanding what's at stake with every issue that we face. On this last week of July 4th, many Americans celebrate the holiday by remembering Independence Day, by remembering what it was for our founding fathers to take that bold, courageous step of creating a nation founded, yes, under God, but founded with that first amendment of the Bill of Rights, a protection of the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom from discrimination. All as amendments to our Constitution that protected our liberties, that created this republic, this federal republic, with states' rights, with individual rights, and to minimize the effect and the impact and the control of the federal government upon our day-to-day life. And that battle continues until today as to weighing the battle between individual rights and collective rights, but there is obviously no, I think, more successful democracy in the world because of the genius of our founding fathers. And I think there is no holiday that reminds us better about what America is, what it means to be American, than July 4th and Independence Day. I wrote a piece that I wanted to share with you before I started doing podcasts back in July 4th, 2013, called 4th of July Comes with Opportunity for Liberty in Egypt. It was right after the second revolution in Egypt. The first one was in January 2011. And then the second one began in June 2013 when the Egyptian public started to reject, reject 
the Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood that had won an election. And I won't, you can look at the history as to what happened, as to why they won that election, but the Egyptian people initially, after a runoff against Mubarak's chief of intelligence, Suleiman, voted for Mohammed Morsi. Well, it didn't take more than 14, 16 months of Mohammed Morsi for them to realize that this was not the president they wanted, that this was a theocracy, that it was an ultimately much worse than the regime that they had. That yes, maybe 50% plus voted him in. He went on a runoff in which initially he only got 25 to 30% of the vote with many different candidates. And then the runoff was against the former intelligence chief of a military autocratic dictatorship. But having said that, to those who believe that the Islamists and the Muslim Brotherhood is in the DNA of Muslims, 90% of the Egyptian population is Muslim, and there were 8 to 10 million people in the streets of Egypt, in the streets of Cairo, in the streets of the major cities across Egypt, protesting the Muslim Brotherhood in June 2013. And I said, on this 237th, now this week we're on the 242nd anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, it is important to take a moment to embrace the courage of our founding fathers when they placed pen to parchment and declared our independence from Britain. It's easy in our day and age to forget the heroic step that was taken. At our American Islamic Forum, we're thankful for the opportunity that the founding fathers gave to us as we embrace every 4th of July and every day as free-thinking Americans. In 2013, I said it was this year's celebration comes at a time when we're seeing great change, great opportunity in the Middle East. Our hearts and minds go out to the Egyptian and the Syrian people calling for their own right to be free. The military coup that occurred in Egypt is a stark reminder of the fragility of society. So in response to Revolution 2.0, there wasn't another attempt at trying to get democracy right. There was simply a coup in the military autocratic components that, you know what, we were better than these theocrats that people don't want it, so let's go ahead and depose the Islamists and correct the wrong that they put into place. So you could make an argument to today because of the dysfunction in the Middle East that this was the right thing to do. But I think most revolutions in the West prove that a military autocratic torturous way of getting to democracy doesn't work that ultimately it's revolutions from the bottom up that will succeed and i said at the time while no one can can condone the toppling of an elected government we certainly will not miss the muslim brotherhood's stifling rule over the egyptian people and we hope that the egyptian military is true to their word that this is only a coup in, of transition that delivers what the people want, freedom. What began on June 29 and ended in the ouster of President Morsi on Wednesday, July 3rd, 2013, should be viewed as Revolution 2.0, and it's hopefully a step for further maturation of a nascent revolution and democracy in its infancy. It's a long journey toward freedom for Egypt. And we should not forget that our own constitution in the United States did not come until 13 years after the 4th of July in Philadelphia in 1789. 
and assuming that Egyptian society can simply turn Jeffersonian principles on overnight belies history in the West, let alone in the Middle East where religion and the rubric of Islamism has not been defeated through Islamic reform. Egypt needs time. Yes, it needs an interim government. And then I go on to talk about that it is not in our DNA as Muslims that that be the truth. So, when you look at this July 4th, five years later, I'm sure many of you out there are saying, Zudi, look at what happened in Egypt. Thank God they had a military coup. Look, Syria has turned into a bigger disaster, on and on, and people can justify whatever way they want that somehow the retrospectoscope proves that one evil is better than the other. And all I can tell you is that in today's day and age of, of, of social media, of mass movements, of the West now trying to regain, and we hear the word deep state being used in our own democracy here after 242 years. In the deep state, if there's any country that had the origins of the real deep state, it was Egypt. One third of its economy is run by its own military, and it truly has a deep state that ultimately will take back control as it did in 2013. So we're then realizing that the only power of individual rights comes from people. The people. It's a very unique experiment that now has succeeded in America. As Ronald Reagan said, we're only one generation away from losing that. Europe lost it in the beginning of the 20th century. And thanks to the United States and thanks to others that fought with them and for them, they were able to defeat, defeat Nazism, push back, obviously, the Soviets and the Cold War, and on. So the challenges continue. But as we celebrated this 4th of July, and I thank every day, thank God for the choice my parents made in coming to this country and celebrating freedom and democracy and giving me the gift, which is American patriotism, as they rejected their failed Syrian patriotism. Every individual wants to be free. So... The fact that we sit in a world in which we think stability is better than regional conflict, I would tell you that to strive for individual freedom should be our ultimate goal. If communities and nation states get worse in their route towards freedom, so be it. If there's anything we should learn from the struggle for independence of our own country, that it doesn't happen overnight, that it takes a special recipe, that Maybe I'll be proven 100 years from now as people listen to these podcasts and I'm six feet under that it could just never happen. But I will always give every human being on the planet, whether Chinese, Russian, Indian, Syrian, Egyptian, Kenyan, or American, the benefit of the doubt that we all want to be free of an autocratic or theocratic government. And that ultimately, if they try to do that, as the Iranians are trying today on the streets of Iran, if they try to seek to be free, we should look at our own history and say, why not them also? Look at our own history and say, democracies don't fight wars against one another. So if there is a long-term stability for the world, it is towards 
more democracies. Right now, only 30% of the world live under democracy. So in this week, I hope you enjoyed the time with your family, barbecuing hot dogs, hamburgers, as we did at our house, ribs. And you enjoy the freedoms that are this great, this great land of liberty, which is the United States of America. And I hope and pray that every country joins us in this tough but amazing experiment of freedom and liberty and democracy. When we come back, I want to talk to you about what other pressures are faced in the Middle East and what was being written in Arabic before the Egyptian Revolution. Because I'm approaching next week, I'm going, I was asked to testify to Congress about the Muslim Brotherhood. And as we talk about that, I'll come next week and talk to you about that conversation I had with the subcommittee I was asked to testify to. But I want to set the stage for that, as next week we'll look into the details about what's happening with the public conversation about the Brotherhood. But when we come back, I want to lay out what's the opposing major Islamic establishment's influence upon what's happening in Egyptian state, in states across the Middle East that are Muslim-majority today. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Uh, they're terrorizing people who are coming to this country. What? They're terrorized. They're terrorizing people that are coming to this country. ICE is enforcing the law. And what other terrorist ways? I mean, I know the big one right now. The claim is, well, separating children. Oh, and now they're locking children up yep. with their parents because they're not separating. Mm-hmm. How is that terrorizing people? The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We were talking about... July 4th, independence, and how the revolutions in the Middle East, to those who were naive about all the history, thought that, oh, it means this is great. They're going to finally get rid of dictatorships. They're going to finally get rid of monarchs and enter towards Jeffersonian democracy. And good news about the revolution. Yes, our families were for long hoping that there would be mass movements against the tyrants of the Arab world. But nobody who knows those tribal communities, those challenge communities when it comes to critical thinking, Western learning, education rooted in, in reason and uh, against memorization, if you will, but a more uh, law-based, rational society, if you will, that has all been stifled by hundreds of years of Ottoman rule and then colonial rule and then obviously the biggest problem in the last hundred years has been this antagonism between Islamism of the Brotherhood, Jamaat Islamiyya, Khomeinism, and the autocracy of military dictatorship. So that's not going to go away overnight. However, in today's social media, in today's viral spread of movements, it could change pretty quickly. It could take only one generation, 25 years, perhaps 
every three to five years movements forward with another revolution. Revolutions did not typically happen with a single revolution other than the United States, but there was a lot unique to the United States. But even with that, as I mentioned, it took 13 years till we actually had the law of the land when they first pushed back against the theocrats of Britain. So we can't, if we look at Egypt, say that, well, we're going to endorse military dictatorship. We did this in the 20th century, that no, no, we're going to endorse military dictatorship because the Brotherhood has proven that it's much worse. Yes, it's been proven worse, but what happened to push back? The people rose. So if you're going to accept that the Muslim Brotherhood got pushed on its heels because of an uprising of 8 to 10 million people, I can tell you now in 2018 that my words back in 2013 and at and, and the time in which I wished we had not taken the, the, the side of the military dictatorship nor the side of the Brotherhood. Obama administration did both. They initially worked to facilitate entrenchment of the Brotherhood as I know personally with what our ambassador to Egypt did. And then Obama now reveals through his uh, right-hand uh, 12-year-old unexperienced foreign policy guy, Ben Rhodes, that uh, uh, basically he had arguments with him. This was detailed in the Atlantic uh, interview just a few months ago and uh, about Ben Rhodes' book. I guess he talks about that in his book. Ben Rhodes said that they had arguments in which Obama said, no, we're going to let the military take back over. Which, again, is not exactly wrong, but what would have been most right would have been to work on Revolution 3.0, which would have been to, to work with secular movements and make it apparent that we want those that share our values, that we will endorse, and the rest we will either remain silent on or work against. Not militarily, but ideologically, as we did in the Cold War, and as we should be doing now in the 21st century against any Islamist movement or autocratic military dictatorship movement. But that wasn't the policy. And I think there was an opportunity, one of the biggest opportunities short of the 2011 opportunity was this opportunity in 2013 in which the Egyptian protests against the Muslim Brotherhood government, just like in Iran on the Shia side now today and in 2009, in Egypt, in June and then July 2013, there were 10 million people in the streets rejecting theocracy of the Muslim Brotherhood. Was there a better opportunity to show that, you know what, democracy is what we want, Islamism is not it, that it was a shot more than even just across the bow to all Islamist movements in the region, including Hamas, including obvious militant ones like Al-Qaeda and then soon to be ISIS that year, that was heard in all of the Middle East and North Africa that Islamists will not rise and stay in power easily or maybe not even at all. And yet, as we look at Syria at the same time, it was beset with the beginning of ISIS and who was funding it? Qatar and Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Don't be mistaken. The radicalization of the Syrian revolution and ultimately, as they abandoned maybe the Muslim Brotherhood when they lost control in the Egyptian deep state then took back over, there was no doubt that 
their money initially was all in with the Islamists. So there was an opportunity lost there. How do we defeat Islamism? There's a lot of examples of what's being done militarily. The Egyptian military now has imprisoned and tortured hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists, of free-thinking citizens, and others that have been trying to resurrect a semblance of democracy in their society, and it's really returned now to Mubarak 2.0. Uh, you have um, the current regime in Egypt, which is obviously more stable and uh, more uh, uh, obviously no longer Islamist. But yet, uh, let me give you one example. They claim that the way that Al-Azhar University is going to defeat jihadism of ISIS, jihadism of the Middle East, of Sunni radical political Islamists is by saying that only institutions and governments, especially governments, can declare jihad. That's Islamism. That's an Islamic state. But that believes that viral movements and citizens of that state cannot be involved in jihad and only its military and government can do that. How is that any different from the Muslim Brotherhood? All it is is it's, it is basically saying that viral movements of the same intoxicant of political Islam are forbidden, only we can use it in governments. So, you know, listen, it is easy for me to sit here and say what should or should not be done, but ultimately I will always, as there is breath left in my body, believe that the only solution is through democracy, through open civil societies, through when three papers are not enough, you have 20 newspapers, 80 newspapers, you have Twitter, you have YouTube, Facebook, you have websites, social media, you have an antagonism of opinions and begin to build new universities that allow critical thinking against this government, that government, that party, and other parties. That there's not only just four political parties in, in Egypt, but 10, 15, until they start to come together and coalesce around secular liberal democracy. So at the same time while these things were happening, I had laid out on our website at AIFdemocracy.org how Yusuf Qardawi, the spiritual head of the Muslim Brotherhood, had been for years whispering into the ears of 60 million Arabs in the Middle East, ultimately Islamists, how an Islamic state should be built. Sort of what was called by some scholars a theodemocracy. And many remained ignorant of what he was saying. He said it at Qardawi.net, Q-A-R-A-D-A-W-I.net, an Arabic site with a huge, one of the top 10 most trafficked sites in the Middle East. And on that site, he had day after day repeatedly posted how you start an Arab democracy. When did this happen? An Arab Islamic theodemocracy. Now that sounds like an oxymoron. Not for the Islamists. For the Islamists, they believe in theodemocracy. For Americans, obviously, and again, which brings me back to the July 4th theme, that is a complete oxymoron. Real democracy rejects theocracy. Accepts God. It believes in morality. 
in the individual autonomy of an individual under universal equality, universal rights under God, that is protected by the government. But it rejects the role of government as God, as the Sharia state. Qardawi had been laying out for years, repeatedly, his vision on his site and in his program on Al Jazeera, what a Muslim democracy would be like. And sure enough, his ambassadors in American Muslim organizations and Muslim organizations, all offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood across the Middle East, would echo that as they did for years. That was in 2008 and 2007 that I translated those things and put them on our website and said, this is what he's publishing now. What is, I asked, our counter-project against the Qardawi theodemocracy movement, against the Qardawi Islamist movement that is much more than simply the Brotherhood in Egypt. It is a large attempt to replace what it's demonizing as secularism. They attached dictatorship to secularism and thus demonized it and made themselves as theodemocrats out to be holier than thou and the better alternative to military dictatorship. Fast forward to 2011 and you have the mass movements not generated by the Qardawis of the world, the initial seeds of the mass movements of Dara in Syria, of Cairo in 2011, of Tunisia of 2011, of Libya and Yemen. Initially it was economic. Initially it was the same as the United States in that taxation without representation. And then for the first months, this was a mass movement of all faiths, of different political stripes. But ultimately, the Islamists, as they always do, proved to be more organized than anyone else, and they hijacked it. We didn't have a counter-project, and we still don't. My testimony to whoever will listen has always been, until we have an offense, we will continue to be defeated by their offense domestically in their own countries, in which terror groups like the Muslim Brotherhood take over, and then globally when these movements are more about ideas, ideologies of theodemocracies and theocracies, if you will, in which real secular liberal democracy is incompatible. So there's a lot to be learned about simply what's happened in the last 10 years in the Middle East, not just about 2011 when the revolution started, but back in 08, back in the last hundred years also. I'll have a lot more to come to you about this project of the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam, but reflect on it as we look at our own origins this week, as we celebrated our 4th of July, reflect on the changes that brought us to where we are in the West. And I would not give up on whether it's possible in the Middle East. Many people may die. But ultimately, I don't believe that accepting military dictatorship is the answer because it might give us a short-term solution, but ultimately these dictatorships, as we see with the current dictatorship in Egypt, is still saying that jihad is still good. It's for our military. We would declare jihad against whoever we fought. But it's only our state that can do it, and thus it can be controlled that way. That's not the right answer. If you want to defeat political Islam, if you want to defeat global jihadism, you separate mosque and state. You defeat the idea no matter who uses it. 
no matter how organized the state may be, whether it's Egyptian or Saudi or Iranian, until you have a real nation-state based in the rule of law, secular law, not in theocracy, and Sharia, you will never defeat jihadism. This is Zuri Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about today. Talk about this week. What's latest in the news across the world of Islamic reform for reformers and how are we doing? Not too well. Not too well at all. Because the Islamists are taking the time, taking the time in which the West is distracted. Yes, we have a president who's finally willing to call out Islamism for what it is, to uh, identify even rhetorically that uh, reform is necessary. Uh, But our president also, as he rebuilds some of the lost alliances we had with Sunni Arabs, has empowered some of the dictators. We'll talk about where we are with the Saudis. Are they doing a a song and dance about reform? I, I think they are, but we'll see. But Turkey is ascendant, and Turkey's ascendant as an enemy, not as an ally. The election now, uh, just held last week, Erdogan was re-elected with uh, a unbelievable further empowerment of his dictatorship. And it is dictatorship. It might be democratic elected, but if it is, if it's a genuine election, which nobody really can guarantee, it is a majoritocracy. But I believe there's probably a lot of fraud involved in that election. I know a lot of Turks, if you follow their media, their their social media feeds of the opposition, especially in Turkey, will tell you that the election was fraught with corruption and many other problems. So is he the legitimate president of Turkey? I don't believe so. I think there's been a lot of evidence that he has been illegitimate. But there is a lot to be seen about what's being revealed about who the new allies of Erdogan, not new, who the more flagrant allies of Erdogan are today. And last week, pictures of American Muslim opinion and thought leaders meeting in Turkey's largest mosques, paid for by the Turkish government to go and be with the president of Turkey and his Chiefs of staff and assistants and leaders of the Dianet. What Dianet is what? It is the Turkish Islamic controlled, government controlled factory of religious thought of Islamists that is fed out of the AKP party apparatus. So, now, this is not to say that the AKP is the only one that controlled Turkish religious practice in the mosques and funded it but at least and again i'm i i don't think secular dictatorship is the answer but at least in the time of secularism under turkey under the you know ataturk's turkey that then lasted decades after that until 
the AKP won in, I think, around 2002, there was a separation between Turkish nationalists and what the DNA did. With the AKP, it became one mixture of government policy and DNA policy. So these American Muslim leaders met under the Turkish Directorate of Religious Affairs, or the DNET. They had a week-long paid visit that began during that election week and ended way a, a few days after it and congratulated the president on his 52.5% victory over his rival who had 30.6%. So Naim Beg, director of Dar al-Hijra, one of the primary Islamist mosques in the United States that has a very sordid history with the Islamic Society of North America and other Muslim Brotherhood offshoots, or I call them legacy groups. Beg said, I believe that Erdogan and his party coming to power again will bring a better future for Turkey. Naib Neg, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Neg praised Erdogan's courage for adopting a leading stance on Muslim issues. He said that he is unique in his strength and courage to take a stand for global Muslims and their issues. Noah from, I, from Ohio said that he danced and shed tears of joy with the results were announced. The election was so important that um, he felt just besides himself at the joy of the victory. There was another Muslim originally from Somalia that was there with them and on and on, you saw Muhammad Majid, another previous president of the Muslim Islamic Society in North America. So there is no longer any any confusion, any lack of clarity about the relationship between the AKP government, I'm sorry, the AKP party in control of the Turkish government now and has been for 16 years and the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood offshoots, the leading establishment to the Islamist community in America. And they're congratulating them. There is now a coalescence. Who is trying to defend Qatar, Turkey, and American Islamist groups? And why? Because they are able to operate most freely in America. I'm not saying to take away their rights to do this, but freedom is not only about legal prevention by the state, but actually exposing them as being medieval theocrats in the way they approach and how he is. The fact that he publicly, you read this from Turkish newspapers that I just looked at with you, where's the American media in covering this? Where? Where's the American media? You have American Islamist groups welcoming a thug of an Islamist dictator into another election who's continuing to rule and has become a cult of Erdogan now, going into his end of his second decade of rule. And all we hear is his own propaganda being pushed out, and they think that they, they even expose that these folks took foreign money 
and they should have to register as FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act, because of the fact that they're taking foreign money. And the largest mosque in the United States was built by whom? The Turkish government. The new Dianet Mosque in, in, in Baltimore that opened only a few years ago is now the most expensive, largest mosque in the United States. And if you tell me that's not an outpost of the AKP party of the Turks, then I don't know what it is. So when are we going to wake up? Their offense continues to push into the West. Their offense continues to dominate our Muslim communities. We need diversity in our faith community. We need critical thinking. We need new ideas. And it's time for America not to get into the business of Muslim reform, but at least to get into the business of liberty, universal human rights in the Muslim community. It made a lot of sense that we separated from the UN Human Rights Council. It was not a human rights council. It was an anti-Semitic, anti-American fest that would rarely just get lib service sometimes to the human rights disasters and travesties that were happening in Syria in Saudi Arabia, Iran, and elsewhere, but because of the domination and the block vote of the OIC Islamic governments, the Human Rights Council turned into a disaster. So it's about time we started to separate out of stuff like that and to begin to develop a coalition of democracies that can set the standards for the world, even outside the UN if we have to. Because it's not going to happen inside the UN. It's not. But it's time to expose the Naim Begs, the Muhammad Majids, and the others that uh, Abdul Hamid the Jamil, the head of the Majlis Shura of the New York Islamic Leadership Council, represented multiple mosques in his congratulating Erdogan and the Turkish people for their successful elections. And he did this on the Turkish government's dime as an American citizen traveling over there as basically a lobbyist for Erdogan. Hold these guys accountable. To our founding fathers, these Islamist mosque leaders would be no better than the theocrats of the Church of England, who were enemies of the United States at the time. So these ideologues who are taking the side of Erdogan should be exposed as theocratic enemies of the United States. I don't care if Turkey's in NATO, they shouldn't be. We should look immediately at punishing them, suspending them from NATO until they begin to respect the rule of law and democracy, not just by definition of elections, but by definition of the separation of religion and state. Mosque and state, if you will. There's a lot going on, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we are asleep. As I talked about Kurdawi, the, the connection with Qatar, where Kurdawi lives and wrote about theodemocracy, the connection with Turkey, an active theodemocracy now in which the Turkish people are seeing their economy be sucked into an Islamic banking system. Look up Islamic banking in Turkey just in the last month and you'll see how many pieces are being written about the fact that the Islamists in Turkey, the AKP, want their economic system to become an example for Malaysia, Indonesia, and other countries of how to do Islamic banking. What is that about? Islamic banking is not about the invisible hand of Adam Smith on the free markets. Islamic banking is about the theocratic hand that can control in a very anti-Semitic, anti-Western way the shifting of funds into terror organizations, into Islamist evangelical movements for their 
violent jihad across the planet and the establishment of their caliphate. That's what Islamic banking is about. They say it's about no interest and other things, but the laws in Islamic law are about preventing usury as it was in Judeo-Christian law. Reba is about usury, it's not just any interest. And we can have that debate if you want. But at the end of the day, the non-interest banking that they claim is Islamic finance are all buy, lease to buy schemes that end up costing consumers no different than the fixed interest rate loans that we get here in the West. We can debate all that details if you want, but nothing legitimizes the control of billions through a banking system that then funnels it into Islamist terror organizations. There's a lot going on out there, ladies and gentlemen, and we're ignoring most of it. We are ignoring most of it. As we twiddle our thumbs with Trump derangement syndrome and a Washington, Hollywood, New York obsession. This is Udi Jasper. We'll be back with the last segment this week on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. We're all just making everything about politics, and it's not. Is your life really about politics? Why are we spending so much time on politics? Look at the conversations that we could be having. Look at the money that is being spent to destroy one side or the other. What a waste. This is the country that is currently still changing the world. This is who we are? It's not who we are, and we know it. The Glenn Beck Program. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to talk about two stories. One is one that didn't make any of the news here in the West, but was reported on in uh, in Europe. And a uh, British uh, Newspaper talked about an imam by the name of Abdul Rauf, 51, that had been believed to be untouchable as bullied and tormented children at a mosque in Crawford Street, Rockdale, Britain. The MEN reports Rauf of Sussex Street, uh, uh, Rockdale, was sentenced at Manchester's Minchell Street Crown Court on earlier last week after pleading guilty to assault occasioning actual bodily harm and 20 offenses of common assault and this guy had assaulted children at his mosque under CCTV surveillance in which they saw him assaulting these children some through strikes some some through molestation unbelievable footage as reported here the court heard that the father of five would slap kick and push the boys he was teaching the scales of the imam's offense was not revealed until one of the victims told a teacher at the school that he and another boy had been assaulted at his local mosque. They looked at over 40 hours of CCTV and revealed 109 assaults by Rauf. One of the victims claimed that the imam had called him a gay boy before taking off his sock and slapping him around the head with it. CCTV showed him assaulting a number of pupils, but only two of the 109 assaults pressed charges. Only two. 
the report makes you, it gets even sicker. He was protected. He felt he was untouchable. Rove's defense lawyer, Ahmed Nadim, said his client had since been ostracized by the local community after the extent of his offending became clear. So he's the victim now. The defendant displayed Dickensian attitude toward teaching and feels a level of corporal punishment is appropriate. It is to do with the understanding of how appropriate teaching must be engaged in. These are the these are the idiotic Salafis who believe that some hadith supposedly from the Prophet that if a, if a kid does not go to prayer, you should strike him with a stick. Now, I reject that hadith. I don't believe the Prophet ever said it. It's very inauthentic. It's, its lineage is weak. On and on. You can call that an apologetic of a reformer. I call it reality. Let them debate us about it. If they want to defend that as being legitimate, you can't defend it through any reason. So why do we even debate it? Throw it away. I dread to think it said in the, in, the, in the report how many lives of children this monster has affected over the years. We are working with the Council of Mosques and other partners to ensure that this type of behavior is never repeated. So, at the end of the day, what happened with this, with this guy? He got but a little over a year of sentence. That's it, 17 months slapped on his wrist as he beat over a hundred kids jailed for 17 months so and if you think as we see Tarek Ramadan now in jail in France for raping multiple young women that finally had the courage that finally had the public support to report this silver-tongued grandson of Hassan al-Banna, who had been supposedly the rock star of Muslim reform in Europe. On and on, we find that not only is their ideology a threat to the West, but their behavior follows that with an unbelievable connection between Islamism and sexual deviancy, misogyny, hate speech, anti-Semitism, and militancy and jihad. Not a surprise since their ideology teaches the third, fourth class status of these minorities, women, and vulnerable groups. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? Last, I want to talk about Saudi Arabia's reforms. Now, are they real? People were starting to think twice, they said. And now some of the, these reforms are beginning to kick in. Women finally began driving just uh, two weeks ago. And they said, look at how much Saudi Arabia is changing. We saw videos of women standing through the sunroofs of their car, dancing, rapping. We saw some go viral with rap songs from the driver's seat. And, you know, listen, I, I again will admit that small change can be a step in the right direction. But as a recent piece by Simon Henderson said that Saudi Arabia perhaps has hit the brakes on reforms. They've arrested feminists, that it's not, in fire, not inspiring the faith in the crown prince as they thought it would be. MBS, 
Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince who has been called the reformer by the likes of Tom Friedman and others, said he's likened to Saddam Hussein. Friedman didn't say this, but many in Saudi Arabia are connecting him to that. Why? Well, remember the executed former dictator, as uh, Henderson talked about, was a good Saddam initially. When he was vice president, was a driving force for modernization in the 70s. And while he was ruthless, it was felt that that ruthlessness was going to help modernize their society. But then in the 80s and 90s, he entered into an interminable war with Iran. And he began to rule in what was described in the book, named the Republic of Fear, as one of the most ruthless, tyrannical regimes on the planet. So will MBS turn out to be a Saddam? So there are stories out there about how MBS has threatened his opponents. The bullet story that I won't waste your time with, but ultimately talks about how he bullied and threatened his opponents. Now, or is he a Bill Clinton? That he has a knack for engaging with even those he disagrees with and may ultimately be a person that brings forth a successful society. Time will show, but more recently we've seen a backpedaling, a more autocratic, torturous way to approach his own people. He isn't really that interested in change. He's interested in consolidating power. So ultimately, as Henderson from the Washington Institute reports that uh, don't believe everything you read or see. Look at what's happening to people who criticize the regime. Look at what's happening to people who criticize the establishment in Saudi Arabia, not just the Wahhabis. And Friedman and others now are saying maybe finally the Saudis are beginning to separate from that unholy alliance between the Wahhabis that they allowed to control their Islamic legal system and the government. And again, that may be some of the best way to get to where we need to in Saudi Arabia. But I don't think the end justifies the means. We're not talking about the imprisonment and torturing of radical Wahhabis. It seems like the only stories we're hearing about is the imprisonment and torturing of women who don't want to wear hijab, of brave Bedouis of the world who leave their faith or who are just critical liberal thinkers. So if we're talking about terror groups or we're talking about Muslim Brotherhood entities, that might be one thing. But again, that wouldn't legitimize their torture, but it would obviously speak to the direction in which the Saudis want to head. So we'll continue to, to follow that story. I've followed it here for quite a while. And, you know, this is the place on Reform This that you can come to find the real story about what's happening across the Muslim world. The real story about what's happening in the consciousness of Muslims in Muslim-majority countries, but also here in the United States as we address the real issues of countering political Islam and advancing liberty. Look forward to talking to you next week on the heels of my testimony to Congress about the threat of the Muslim Brotherhood. 
and look forward to sharing with you a few stories about the debates that we have with the left and the right about what to do with the Muslim Brotherhood, a global threat. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Talk to you next week. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.